You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, July 2nd, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. And Evan Bernstein. Steve, I think you missed a few names there. Yeah, I know. We have an (laughs) intimate crew for this episode. So both Jay and Kara are traveling. Independently. Independently. Uh, Yeah, not together. And both of them were trying to join us, you know, remotely with their laptop and whatever Wi-Fi they have access to where they are. Uh And both of them crapped out. Like both of them said, I just, Wi-Fi is not working. Okay, not because, you know, we need, you can't be dropping all the time. It's got to be a reasonable connection. So it just wasn't going to be possible. So pretty much at the last minute, we learned that it was just going to be the three of us. Unreliable Wi-Fi from hotels and on the road? Who would have thought that? Yeah, I know. We need uh, we need Elon Musk's you know Wi-Fi in the cloud. We got to launch satellites. those satellites and, and yeah, mess up the, the constellations in the sky so we can have our connections. But we have more than enough to talk about. We have a great lineup of, uh, of items for today. So um, I had a weird day on Friday. How weird, Steve? Well, it was first. It was sad because my sixteen. We had to put down our sixteen-year-old dog, Quincy. Oh, that's oh, terribly Quincy. sad, Quincy. Yeah. Good run for a dog, though. Very good. Go- Golden Retriever mix. Sweet, sweet dog. But great family dog. Basically, had the, had him for the entire life of my daughters. And he, yeah, yeah, very. You know, he's healthy. Sixteen years old. Really, just the, his limiting factor was just arthritis in his back legs. Mm. So. He, he could still get up and go outside and go to the bathroom, but he was no, you know, not able to run around and chase squirrels anymore. Steve, was that arthritis from an injury? Well, he did have both of his rear legs had ACL tears at different Ouch. times that we had to have surgically corrected. So I'm sure that had something to do with it. Yeah, well, that squirrel chasing squirrel. Yeah, no, that's what it is. You know, because we have the invisible fence, and he would go running for whatever squirrels or chipmunks, and then when he got to the invisible fence, he would stop short, and that you know was damaging his legs. Oh gosh, Ooh, who would have Jeez. thought? But that's also a very common injury for the breed, apparently. Wow. So it's a weakness of the breed. Those purebreds are just not genetically sound. But he's actually he was a mix, but you know, still he's mostly I think he's mostly golden. So that was sad, and you know, then he just you know he was getting last few. Days before we put him down, you could tell he was really getting lethargic, wasn't dealing with the summer heat well. Mm-hmm. Then he stopped eating. Oh. And he started throwing up, you know. So then it was like, yeah, we just couldn't do it anymore. So we had to bring him in. It's again, it's, it's sad. It's, you know, because he's, he's perfectly awake and alert, sitting there looking at us, has no idea that these are the last moments of his life. Oh, gosh. But still, you know, it, it was, we had to do it. I love. Oh, don't do it. Don't go there. <laughs> yeah, I was, Bob, thinking, please. I was thinking of, Come of on, George, thinking about it. Well, George's song at the time. Uh, um, George wrote a song about it. Yep. So anyway, so we're in, while we're at the vets, you know, a couple of cop cars go by with their sirens blaring. You don't think anything of it, right? It happens every now and then. So on our way home, like we're almost at our house and there's literally like five police cars surrounding this one block with their sirens blaring. So something where, was going on. Where on your block, Steve? Down the street and around a corner. Okay. So basically okay. like a couple of blocks from where we are. What's happening? That's you, – like I, you never see that in, in Hamden, Connecticut. You know, you never see five – I don't think we have five police cars. <laughs> <laughs> Unusual, yeah. So yeah, we found out what happened. What do you okay. think was going on? Oh, oh gosh. Five of them at, at a house? They caught someone breaking in and I don't know. No. There was a mass shooting 
No. Five what? people, five people were shot and sent to the hospital. Where no one was live? killed. Oh my gosh. I know, right? No, this is, does not happen in my neighborhood. Like this is not, this is extremely unusual. Uh, holy crap. And I was correct. Hamden doesn't have that many police cars. They, there were police cars from surrounding towns. They, they oh called gosh. in, there were cars from three towns there. Yeah. So what, one of the houses, one of the, some, you know, the people who live, you know, a couple of blocks away was throwing a, uh, like a pool party, but it was one of those sponsored parties where like you pay you to get in and they have a ton of people there. Okay. So there were like hundreds of people at this party. Oops. And there was already a, like one cop car there because other neighbors had called on the noise and they were like going there to shut it down. And some guy opened fire with a small handgun or something. What do you, do you know if they, if did Steve? Are you saying they opened fire at the one police that was there? No, or? not at the not at the police at the crowd. At the crowd. Oh my gosh! Uh, shot five people and they got away. They still haven't been caught. <gasps> <laughs> that's remarkable. I, I, that's stunning. Stunning. I know, news. right? You don't think? I mean, you know. Can happen anywhere, but what All are the right. odds? Never my yard, never my neighborhood, never. I mean, I thought we had um, obviously the horrible school shooting in Newtown where Bob lives. Oh, God. And that affected people we know personally, right, Evan? Close oh, absolutely. Friends. Yeah, yeah. Good, very so, good friend of mine. Uh, family was, yeah. was there. Unfortunately, no one was injured in that family, but oh, can't speak for everyone. That's yeah, yeah. just awful. And, and I was in Cheshire uh, as the Cheshire murders, uh, the, fam- the infamous oh, God. Oh, Cheshire yeah, those, murders, yeah, the Cheshire were happening murders. in 2007 of the Pettit family. Uh, the which, again, it, it's the, these, are the, <laughs> these are these, you know, storybook kind of little towns you read about that nothing like this ever seems to happen except when it does happen except when it does happen right but i never would have figured like within a few blocks of my house a mass shooting i mean keep thinking back to sandy hook and that was literally a couple miles away so um, i know that, that was surreal to have this major national event be so close and then obama came and was speaking and watch we're watching it on tv and it was just like hey he's just two miles away and and that that was it doesn't get too much more surreal than that oh, in terms of sobering is what that oh is. Oh my it's, god! And and I'll tell insane. you what, the, because you know, obviously, I'm friends with people from the Sandy Hook community. I've got lifelong friends who live there. I know know them, know their families. They're still not, you know, things are not still gone back to whatever normal was. I don't know that anything will ever go back to normal for that for that community. But I can tell you firsthand it's not they it still lingers um oh, the, yeah. pain, the pain is still there and it's going to be for well certainly this generation and who knows how long you just you just there's no more back to normal after something yeah you like don't that. you don't get over stuff like that and just go back to your life you know what i mean no matter how much time goes by you're nope. right that's a generation's gonna have to go by and even still that will always sort of be part of that town's history now that just will like you can't like, think of like Columbine. Columbine. Yeah, you yeah, can't right. think of Columbine without that's forever tied to that that event now. Yeah, sadly. So we didn't make national news, but that's the other thing. When you think about it, that's that says something in and of itself. Right. You know, a five person mass shooting and it wasn't even a blip on on the news. You know, we had to go looking for information about it. It's like not that big a deal. I, I Steve, this is the first I'm hearing about this. Right. So yeah. Right. You're right. I, I suppose because there were no because no one was struck. Is that why? 
No, five were, people were hit and sent they to the were hospital. Hit. They were hit. Oh, okay. They were five, nobody they were, died. No one nobody died. died. They were sent to the died. ICU. There were people in the intensive care unit. Still. But five yeah, people yeah. were wounded, yeah. Yeah, it might have been different if people were killed. Maybe. Sure. But still, threshold, right? Uh, but. Yeah, and I mean, the, the other thing is it was probably a small caliber handgun, which is probably, you know, why there were five injuries and not five fatalities, you know? Right. If it was a more powerful weapon, you know, right. it would have been different. Or had, like, a larger capacity. Who knows? All right. Well, Wow. The yeah, mean, street, mean streets of Hamden, huh? Yeah, right. But again, in a way, we, we weren't there when it was happening because we were at the vets putting down our dog. Well, I knew when I didn't see you on uh, City of Heroes for a few days, Steve, that I, I, I thought yeah. something might have been <laughs> not quite right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go on with the show. Bob, you're going to start us off with a forgotten superhero of science. Yes, for this week's Forgotten Superheroes of Science, I am going to talk about Alice Augusta Ball, uh, 1892 to 1916, an African-American chemist who created the most successful leprosy treatment in the early 20th century and more. Alice Ball had a lot to live up to 110 years ago, considering her father was a newspaper editor, photographer, and lawyer. And her grandfather was one of the first black Americans in the United States to make cutting-edge pictures using daguerreotypes. Yet uh, she flourished in that environment. Uh, She did great in science and got a bachelor's degree in pharmaceutical chemistry and a second degree in pharmacy. And remember, this is in the 19-teens here, so that's pretty amazing, just just that alone, for a woman to do that, let alone a black woman. She and her pharmacy instructor published an article in the prestigious Journal of the American Chemical Society – uh, that was quite a coup for her, for any woman before 1920. Uh, she was also the first African-American to get a master's degree from the University of Hawaii. And after that, she was also the first female chemistry professor ever at that university. Treating leprosy, though, was Ball's real legacy. At that time, leprosy or Hansen's disease was stigmatized like grayscale on the Game of Thrones. Yeah, people had almost no chance of recovery. And in Hawaii, they were just sent to some island, uh, some island Molokai, essentially to die. The only treatment was a substance called chalmugra oil. Uh, but calling that a treatment is kind of like calling broccoli a treatment for chocolate addiction. Uh, this stuff <laughs> was horrible. The, the, oil, the oil was too viscous to inject under the skin. Uh, it was too sticky to apply to the skin. And it was vomit-inducing if it was ingested. So how's that, how's that for your treatment of leprosy? So Ball was able to develop a method to turn that oil into something that was injectable and absorbable um, when she was just 23. 23 years old. Nobody else had done that but her. And, uh, and it, was just, it was just an amazing transformation. Unfortunately, if you uh, see uh, earlier when I mentioned uh, when she was born and when she died, she died very young. Soon after that, actually, um, before she – only 24. Even- yeah, before she could publish her findings. So that's, uh, just so, you know, such a career cut short. And then, then to make matters even, you know, more horrible, Arthur L. Dean, the president of the University of Hawaii, who was a chemist and a douchebag, apparently, <laughs> published her findings without giving Ball any credit. And then the icing on the cake, icing on the cake was when he named the technique after himself. Like, oh, are you serious? Intellectual dude? theft? I mean, is oh that- my god! Luckily, Ball's supervisor, Dr. Hallman, uh, spoke out about it, and apparently that made some big difference. But uh, regardless, Ball's treatment was the go-to treatment for for many for years until uh, sulfonamide uh, drugs appeared in the 1940s. So, for many decades, you know, decades of treatments 
Um, who knows how many, you know, how many lives she, she, uh, saved from ruination. I mean, it's just, uh, just amazing. So remember Alice Augusta Ball. Mention her to your friends, perhaps when discussing Hydnocarpus whiteanus or Myobacterium lepromatosis or even zoonotic diseases. Yikes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it, when we hear about leprosy outbreaks today, modern, are we talking about the same disease or some version yeah. of it? No, no. Same, same disease. disease. This is it. Same okay. exact disease, totally controllable. You know, to just take various meds depending on how, you know, how nasty it is. Either, either, I think it's either like a six-month or a 12-month treatment. And uh, it's really not a big deal at all. It's not even it's not even that contagious, you know. You don't need to be isolated on an island or in some leper colony. It's just uh, the, the stigma, as you know. I mean, even today, you don't really come across, you know, the idea or any people who are afflicted with leprosy, which is better than calling them lepers. But it's still that stigma is still there. It's horrible. Oh God! You know, it's like the it's like the plague. You know, it's just like there's just so much baggage with it. But they're all, they're all just – it's all treatable and not a big deal thanks to modern medicine Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and people like Alice Ball. So do you guys know what the bystander effect is? I think the bystander <laughs> – um, something, something about how they, they interpret uh, observed events. And it uh, influences probably. the chain of evidence in a way, a, can, a sort of the contamination. The bystander, the bystander. No, you're hmm. way off. OK. Really? So it has to do with the behavior of people – when they see knew it. something happening. <laughs> so let's say you're walking down the street and somebody's getting mm-hmm. mugged. Okay. What do you do? Do you it depends on lots of factors. <laughs> it does. It depends on lots of factors. I but think of Seinfeld. The oh, bystander gosh. effect is the notion that the people will tend when if they're in a crowd and some kind of emergency is happening, that they will tend not to intervene. And it is attributed to a number of things, but it's primarily attributed to the diffusion of responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's other people there, so nobody thinks it's their nah. responsibility. Everyone yeah. thinks it's somebody else's responsibility. Yeah, yeah. You see, though, there could be certain select individuals in a society that would think otherwise, though. For example, a firefighter is sort of trained to go into yes. dangerous situations. They may not have a second thought and go directly in and try to help. A person in that yeah exactly there, there are lots of factors you have to consider your personal safety as well um, and a, another factor is ambiguity like if you're not sure what's happening you might not want to it's the fear of social faux pas right you don't want to interject into a situation when you're just misreading the situation right oh sure yeah yeah so if there's any ambiguity or uncertainty, that will tend to paralyze people. If there's a diffusion of responsibility, that can also tend to paralyze people. But then there are a lot of perfectly legitimate external considerations that you'll take into account. It's not all internal, right? There's a classic case that triggered re- a lot of research into the bystander effect. Do you guys remember the ca- the case of Kitty Genovese? So this was 1964. A woman was raped and murdered outside of her apartment building. Oh, yeah. And there was a movie made about this or there's a New York Times report that basically concluded that there were 38 residents who could see the and hear the attack from their apartments, but no one reacted. However, that's a myth. Uh, That's not what happened. That Mm. was that was completely misreported by the New York Times. 
that the real events are quite different. And this is a, you know, I don't want to go off too much on a tangent here, but there were really only two people who witnessed the event, not 38. Initially, when she was, when, when Kitty Genovese was attacked, somebody did see the attack and shouted off the attacker. They intervened. The attacker ran away. And then she was struggling to get inside her door and the attacker came back, dragged her into a, into a blind area that nobody could see. And that's where he raped and killed her, stabbed her to death. Uh-huh. And there was one person who saw the attack and did not respond because of fear, basically. And apparently they called somebody and said, oh, there's this thing happening outside my building. What should I do? And the person they called said, don't get involved. Oh. So that that one that did happen. But that was all right. So one person intervened. Another person didn't do anything. And then when she was found, people called the cops. They did what they were supposed to do. So it's not this neat story of the bystander effect as it is often told. And you will still see it referenced that way even today and even in professional references to the bystander effect. So that that erroneous initial reporting, because it's such a dramatic story, right? That's what people remember, the dramatic story, not not the actual facts of the matter. But despite that, despite the fact that that triggered a lot of research into the so-called bystander effect. It doesn't mean that the bystander effect doesn't exist. It does exist, but it it is not an absolute, obviously. And it becomes a question of magnitude. Like so many things in psychology and social psychology, sure, there's tons of influences on people's behavior. But just because it exists doesn't mean it's it's determinative, and we always have to ask the question of what is the what is it the magnitude of this effect, especially compared to other things, other effects, and are there other things that we're not considering? And you know, you always also have to make sure you're not committing the fundamental attribution error, assuming that there's only internal factors. In other words, assuming that someone's behavior is entirely due to like their internal factors, their personality, their history, their beliefs, right? There's people also respond to external factors, but we tend not to look for them with other people. We do for ourselves. Sure. We're happy to explain our own behavior based on external factors, but we assume that other people's behavior are due to internal factors. That's kind of where the bystander effect is also. All right. So this is all background to a new study. So in this study, they simply were we're looking at CCTV in public spaces in different cities. So they reviewed CCTV monitoring in Amsterdam, Lanc- Lancaster, and Cape Town. Uh, so three mm-hmm. different countries, three yeah. different cities. And they looked at uh, many different violent incidents, right? They, they counted up all the, you know, the violent incidents over a specific period of time. And then they determined in what percentage of time did somebody intervene? I'll tell you that the the number, the percentage was pretty much the same in all three cities. So that that's interesting. So that tells you it's not that culturally dependent, at least across those three different cities. Maybe it'd be different in you know more more disparate parts of the world. But what would you guess the percentage is? When what percentage of cases did bystanders intervene? Fifty percent, one half of the time. I'd say probably sixty-five percent, ninety percent. Oh, that's that's uh, encouraging. All right, now that doesn't mean that ninety percent of the people intervened. It means in ninety percent of the incidents, someone intervened. That's very different because, as you say, Evan, it only takes one person who 
you know, out of maybe there's 20 people there and only one person intervened. That counts as an intervention, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, but but don't forget, Steve. I mean, just if if one person intervenes, and then that could make the other people think, okay, I don't have to do anything. Oh, now. that absolutely yeah, and that's would totally affect reasonable. The, that would it lets everyone else absolutely. off the hook, yeah. but it also gives them permission to intervene too. Like right. one person intervenes, then everybody intervenes. You know, because yeah. there's also there's also safety in numbers. Like you're not necessarily going to go up against a potentially armed mugger. By yourself, but if like you and ten other people do, you know it's it cuts down your odds of actually getting injured. Be a little bit more confident in your ability to do that. Yeah. So, but also here are the different types of interventions. Just intervening means they could have pulled the attacker off the victim. They could get between the attacker and the victim. They could try to calm down the aggressor, like if there's a fight happening, or they could look after the victim so they didn't necessarily directly intervene with the attacker themselves, but they tried to take care of the victim. But still, those are, those are all reasonable interventions. Okay. So in 90% of the instance, somebody got involved to some capacity in yes, the incident. Right. Exactly. So that's actually pretty re- reassuring. Yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And across three different countries, three different cities, probably yeah. three different cities. Yeah, so. yeah. So it's probably generalizable. But again, we you know we need more data to know how generalizable. But at least it's probably reasonably generalizable. I have a, an anecdote of an incident that I had, and this was shortly after I learned about the bystander effect in my social psychology class in college, which is why I remember it. Because oh, it, was it gave like, you courage, right? <laughs> well, absolutely, it affected my behavior because it, the. That's one of the layers of this anecdote. So I was walking, uh, I think, either to or from class, right? So this is in Baltimore. This is a busy Baltimore, you know, inner city street. And there was a man who was on his, like, knees and his hands. And it was unclear what was going on. He wasn't asking for help. He wasn't clearly struggling. But it, it looked like he might be having difficulty getting up. But it was an ambiguous situation, right? Mm-hmm. So armed with my knowledge of social psychology – I, I went up to him and I said, are you, are you having difficulties or can I help you? And he said, yes, he was having trouble getting up. So I helped him get up. Now, as soon as I did that, like four or five other people standing around us then also jumped in to help, to offer to help. Well, they figured, okay, he didn't attack you. So therefore the chance no, no, of him attacking us or not, you know, or something like that. You just never No, no, know it wasn't that person. at all. It, it wasn't that at all because this you, guy was you not You made them feel bad. Exactly. I think now what it was was that it was an ambiguous situation and people weren't sure what to do. But as soon as I he said he needed help, then people like okay, I now I know what to do, right? Sure. That once removed, he was able to verbalize it, yeah. Once it, it, it removed the ambiguity and therefore the fear of social faux pas, and so with that element removed, people were happy to help. But also, I think by that point they were feeling a little guilty that they were not helping previously. You know what I mean? Um, I think people want to help. People want to be good. You know, want to think of themselves as good people, but not at the risk of putting themselves or someone they're with in some sort of precarious position. Yeah, well, it's it's danger, but again, it's also just fear of embarrassment itself is enough, Evan. Even if they didn't fear, you know, that they were being threatened, and that's the thing is that it really drove home how like our decision making is often a product of just subconscious processes happening in our brain it's like a it's like an algorithm there's a calculus going on and we're not really necessarily consciously aware of all the elements of that algorithm and then that the you know if we're not consciously thinking about it we just sort of going along with the flow of our subconscious 
you know, then we might do something like, you know, like the bystander effect, like walk by and think, oh, I'm not really sure what's going on here. And, you know, that it's enough to paralyze you long enough that they, that the, that you walk past or that some, something else happens. But if you are conscious that these factors are there, they are in play. If you know, oh, I'm going to tend to not act because if the situation is socially ambiguous. If you just knowing that, that's all I, you know, I was armed with that information. Just knowing that, I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go along with my subconscious processing. I'm going to do the, you know, to do what I want to do in this situation. Um, and that was enough. I always remember that because it was like exactly out of the textbook. You know what I mean? It's like, it said it, what I had an experience with, which went along perfectly with what I was studying in class, but it reinf- it reinforced to me the power of knowing your own psychology, right? Yeah. Then that this, this also relates, of course, to a lot of what we talk about skeptically, right? You know, your cognitive biases and then you, it doesn't make you immune to them, but it gives you the ability to take a little bit more control over your cognition, your thoughts and your behaviors. You're not just going with the flow, the pathway of, of, of psychological or neurological least resistance. Mm-hmm. You can think, Oh, there's a tendency to, to do this. You know, there's a tendency to, favor simplistic solutions or to assume cause and effect or whatever. You know the tendency and you can guard against it. And social social psychology is the same exact thing as cognitive biases in that there's social being we are we are highly programmed social creatures, you know, by evolution. But knowing that, knowing the social programming that we're both born with and learn from our culture, you know, it's a combination of those things, gives us more of an ability to to act in the way that we would want to act, not just in the way yeah. that we're predisposed to act. Yeah, you know? it reminds me of uh, if you're a good scientific skeptic, then you know that you should know all the various ways that, that people can deceive themselves and still you still can deceive yourself but you're you're you know you're armed with the knowledge of of what human psychology will, will, will do to, to cause you to deceive yourself and you can kind of rise above it yeah if only there were one handy reference that goes over <laughs> it would help people. all of the ways in which we tend to fool ourselves Gosh. somebody should put that together in a book in and book. name that book the skeptic's guide to the universe how to know what's really real in a world increasingly full of fake. Mm-hmm. It's an oddly specific title you just made up. But you can purchase at from Amazon.com. That's right. Or at your <laughs> local bookseller. That's right. And you're not yeah. supposed to be told to leave a review, so that's totally up to you. Yeah. Coming out in Mandarin <laughs> Chinese in October and in paperback <laughs> in the UK and the United States. I want that horrible everywhere. so bad. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, Evan... Tell yeah. us uh, why NASA is going to be flying drones on Titan. Oh, because it's cool. <laughs> I mean, just the <laughs> fact that we can do that is just amazing. So this announcement came last week when NASA said that they've selected their fourth mission in the New Frontiers portfolio called Dragonfly, an octocopter. Huh. Eight, rotor, eight rotating blades, yeah. It'll explore the prebiotic organic chemistry of titan which is of course the largest of saturn's 62 known moons and it's an amazing world it has a dense hazy atmosphere methane seas and a bunch of other features and we're gonna go there and fly drones around or a drone i should say i think they should send two by the way you know it's not bad having a backup and hey you know how big's a drone 
<laughs> this is going to take place soon. Uh, well, relatively soon. Not soon enough. The spacecraft that's going to take it out there, it's going to launch in 2026, and it will reach Titan in 2034. So we're going to have to oh, wait a boy. little for this. I know. 15 years. I know. Things so damn far away. Is the drone going to fly all the way there by itself? <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? Unfortunately, no, it's not going to do that. It will go uh, aboard a vehicle that will take it there. You know what would get it there quicker? The uh, light sail. A nuclear thermal rocket? Yes, you read my mind, Bob. A nuclear thermal rocket. NASA is also working on that. That's another little side news item, Evan. Really? Very, yeah, yeah, very, very quickly. So this is something that was worked on in the 1950s and 60s, but then when the The nuclear NASA, space treaty. Oh, yeah, well, that's right. No, 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 it was more that NASA decided they wanted to develop the space shuttle, and then they just diverted mm. their funds to that, and so the, the nuclear thermal rocket got sidelined. But now they're revising, they're reviving it, and partly because the technology has advanced, they could be, they could make it you know smaller, safer, et cetera. Don't tease me. Is this real? Yeah, this is real. This I'm not going to get my hopes up. I'm not going to get my hopes up. July 1st, just yesterday, there's a good article about it in Universe Today by Fraser Kane. By our good Yay, friend. Fraser. Uh, yeah, so the, here's the thing that's really promising about it is that with a – so you basically just have like a pellet, like a marble-sized pellet of uranium, and it heats up some propellant. It doesn't have to be fuel, just propellant, mm-hmm. but it could be like just hydrogen, for example. And then it heats it up so much that – and then it you know accelerates it out the, out the back end like a rocket. There's your but thrust. it has three times the thrust per mass of chemical rockets, three times. Nice, yeah. That's so amazing. That's huge. Again, remember the rocket equation. You need fuel to carry the fuel to carry the fuel. And so every increase in efficiency has a geometric you know, effect on uh, how much fuel you have to carry and therefore how much thrust you could achieve, et cetera. So they're calculating that with this type of rocket, you can get from Earth to Mars in 100 days instead Ooh. of the like six, six, to, six, six to eight months, months Yeah, that it yeah. would normally take. So like in half – the time or less than half the time, which makes a huge difference in terms of resources that you have to bring with you, you know, exposure to radiation, everything. And also to, you know, if you want to send probes and drones to the outer planets, we could get there a lot quicker as well. Although when you're just sending probes, time is not as critical. When you're sending people, time is extremely critical. Oh, yeah. True. That's true. But I'd rather not wait a decade for a damn probe to get to Pluto, you know? it's just, Yeah, I know. Those slingshot, gravitational slingshots are, you know, that's a great application of uh, Newtonian physics, but it's it's still, it's like, oh, man, you know, they got to go around the entire solar system just to get to, uh, to a certain spot using, you know, far less fuel. And it's just so frustrating that we're still yeah. tied to chemical rockets. Don't get right. me started. But anyway... What? These are these are only in development now, and although they did, I think earmark 100. They've approved. Congress has approved 125 million dollars to develop nuclear thermal propulsion. That's really oh, the gosh, that's, that's wow, a drop dude. in the bucket, man. Come I on, know, but gotta, still, that's that's for development. That's, you know, if yeah. they get something, um, get a right. prototype, then they could build it. But again, that's not going to be in time for this We're, mission. It so sounds tell, like next generation kind of stuff. Yeah, totally, totally. So how big is this drone, Evan? Roughly the size of the Curiosity. Okay, that's big. So that's, yeah. Damn, bigger than size, I thought. Sizable. Yeah. Uh, this, there, once there, it will uh, has a scheduled life of two years. Two years worth of... Sorry, it says it'll be 10 feet or three meters long. Nice. So, so the, yeah, rel- relatively compact. Yeah, but that's still a, 10 feet big. Yeah, that's weight a big doesn't, drone. Yeah, but weight doesn't matter as much on, on a moon. No, especially Titan. Getting there, you know what the, you know what the gravity is on Titan. There. Yeah, true. One seventh 
that of Earth's. One seventh. One seventh. Yeah. And how thick is the atmosphere? That's the other uh, thing. three times, I believe. Yeah. Three times. So that god, that's a flyer's dream. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Right? That's that's the point. Is that this this moon was? Dis- I mean, let's face it. The solar system created this moon so we could fly drones there someday. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. <laughs> you could you could yeah. put, you could put on some janky wings on your arms and fly around. Yep, you could. Now, how long breathe and shit? But you know, how long is a day on Titan? Two two minutes. Not quite. I don't know. <laughs> a little longer than that. It's probably tidally locked a little bit, I would imagine, maybe 20 days. Yeah, that's right, Steve. 16 days or 384 hours. Yeah. It will do uh, missions while it's in the daylight part of the uh, moon, and it'll rest while it's on the – while it uh, turns away from the sun. And they'll get two years' worth of operational time out of it. Who knows? Maybe more because sometimes these things uh, wind up going surprisingly longer than even anticipated. Yeah, yeah, they over-engineer them, absolutely. Yeah, they, they was. And again, you know, if I don't know if they will, but I'd send two of them. <laughs> you know, what, what if? We, if uh, why not? That's uh, a different mission know. parameter. Again, yeah, more fuel, so. more fuel to carry sure. that fuel, yeah. Yeah, I guess so, but... I mean, they're talking a big probe, dude. If, if it's almost 10 feet, you know, three meters wide, you know, long, that's a, it's not like a... A, you know, a little drone that you buy in a store in a mall. It's that's. A, but since you bring that up, though, they could send tiny drones as backups. Maybe you know. Yeah, I don't know. A little support squad. This drone is going to, as I said, fly around. That's the amazing part. It's also obviously going to land. They say it's actually going to be on the surface of Titan more than it will be in the air, doing taking its measurements, uh, getting samples of the uh, of the surface, doing you know. Analyzing the prebiotic chemistry to see how far it's progressed, how it's evolved, the seismic any anything like seismic activity or what, what's what the what the body is actually you know doing on a on a seismic level, uh, it's going to be taking measurements and it will also have a shield system to deflect attacks from dreaded space eagles. <laughs> you know you hate those space eagles. Have you ever seen Have you seen the videos of birds attacking drones? No. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now I, I want to now. Those those raptors go. Oh my gosh, they right in for it. They think that thing is an enemy, and they go right in for the kill. It's amazing. And of course, the camera's right on it. So every every time you see this thing, you got this eagle or whatever coming right at you. Oh, crushing it! It's amazing. So it's kind of this monkey versus bird continuation. Only you know, it's not exactly a monkey, but it's a tool of a monkey. So I kind of wanted to throw that in as oh, well. Oh, nice, nice. Dragonfly will use a multi-mission radio isotope thermoelectric generator, or an MMRTG, yep, similar to awesome. the one built for the Curiosity. Thank you, Weak Force. And you know, Titan's just—is it the number one candidate right now in the solar system for finding some sort of life no <laughs> no not no, the number one number one to, you know top, no. uh, top five i think even with i think all. yeah europa might be number one mm-hmm. enceladus is the other enceladus, one enceladus yeah mars is i wouldn't give up on mars earth um so why do you think they're going to titan with this drone instead of enceladus or some other body well because it has an atmosphere right well yes it does have the atmosphere so you're saying the other planets although they have the life features may not be conducive to sending well, an actual like, drone. Well, well Europa, Mars, Mars, Europa and Enceladus. Yeah, Europa and Enceladus are. Remember, they they have an icy surface. You have to drill under the crust to get where the life is. Mm. Mars has a very wispy atmosphere. It would be a horrible place for drones. And uh, you know, again, one percent of of our atmosphere. And then, but then you when you whip up a sandstorm, that would not be good for it. 
so Titan is like the one place that we would really want. That's very interesting in terms of its chemistry, its geology, what's going on there. And again, it's light gravity, heavy atmosphere. It's perfect for a drone. I bought my first drone. It's arriving next week. Really? I don't know if either of you own drones. I do. I got a drone for the girls for Christmas, and it took me five minutes to get it stuck in a tree. <laughs> Is it nice. still there? Five minutes. No, I got it down. I got it down. <laughs> oh, gosh. Got it down with another drone. <laughs> right. <that's laughs> and that got stuck. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, PBS, who is marking the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing with a new documentary called Chasing the Moon. This is a three-night special event that relives the journey that defined a generation. This film has no on-camera interviews or narration. Instead, you'll be immersed in the moment through newly discovered and archival footage of the era. You'll also hear from the men and women who were there living this incredible adventure, including a pilot who was chosen to be the first African-American astronaut and a brilliant young mathematician who was one of the first women to work in NASA's mission control. Experience the race to the moon as America struggles with the social and political chaos of the 60s and see what can happen when we put our collective efforts into one great endeavor no matter the risk, and achieve the impossible. Chasing the Moon, a film by Robert Stone from American Experience, premieres Monday, July 8th at 9, 8 central on your PBS station. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Bob, tell us how easy is it to simulate the entire universe? It's not easy, but uh, this one was really interesting. The first large-scale universe simulator using artificial intelligence techniques has been developed, and it's a doozy. It's not only faster than any system before it, it has the ability to extrapolate in ways that scientists do not even understand yet. Oh, come on. Wait a minute. It sounds like you're saying they built something and they don't know how the heck it's doing what it's doing? That's Yeah, that's pretty much the bottom line. This is called... <laughs> It's called the Deep Density Displacement Model, or D3M, or D to the 3M uh, for short. Not sure how you actually they are, they're actually pronouncing that, but I, I admire their alliteration in naming this. Uh, but, you know, I can't help but think, couldn't they get one more D word at the end to make it uh, like four words with the letter D? Maybe Deep Density Displacement Doohickey? I don't, I don't think they tried hard enough. Um, so, uh, so, so the universe uh, simulators, yeah, they are, they are a thing. Uh, there's, there's so many things in the universe that, that we don't know that we, that we, we can't observe, um, or we can't see it at all, or, you know, and you can't get up close to almost anything really. And there's also events in the past that we haven't observed. And, you know, sometimes there's lots of different ways that we could, that events in the past could specifically lead to observations that we make today. So how do you decide which of those pathways the universe took? Well, the simulation can tell you. So there's lots of different types of, of simulators. Uh, they generally come in uh, different flavors or speeds, especially for the ones involved in this study. There's uh, there's a very slow simulation that's very, very accurate. For example, they it could take literally 300 computation hours for one simulation to run its course and a study, you could have one study that could require a hundred of those simulations. So it could take quite a long time. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, you could have these fast simulations that only take two minutes, but they're much less accurate, of course. Uh, sometimes you, the, you see a, a relative error of 9.3%, which isn't horrible, but that's the price you pay uh, when you get a simulation that, that's only a couple minutes long. Now, Bob, what exactly are they simulating? Like the large-scale structures of the 
universe. Exactly. Or, exactly. Yeah. Okay. It's a, the, uh, the, the D3M is simulating the evolution of the structure of the universe in, in terms of the force of the of force of gravity, uh, which is, of course, the critical force beyond all the others that, that determines the universe's large scale because the gravity it acts over large distance distances. And it's basically the main player, the only real player in terms of you know, what the universe looks like at these large scales. So this model, this simulation also, it involves, it has a neural net. Uh, it's, it's very special. It's with this, it's got a neural net that uses deep learning. Deep learning is behind many AI advances from the past decade, from driverless cars to superhuman chess play. Uh, it's an amazing advance. I, I put that on level of CRISPR in terms of, uh, just the cool factor and what it's going to be able to create. As, uh, as the future flies past us. So the, the network was supplied with, uh, this neural network had 8,000 previously run simulations. Now these were the conventional long running high accuracy simulations, uh, that I just mentioned. So imagine that 8,000 of these accurate, but very long running simulations. So this is the critical training data, right? That deep learning needs because it, it, it runs calculations on that data to understand it at, me, at many different levels. So this, the training data is critical. Without it, you're really not going to have a successful deep learning or, or, or maybe even any deep learning at all. Very, very important. And the thing is with, uh, with, uh, with deep learning and these neural networks, the more training that you have, it, it allows it, the neural network to adapt and create more and more accurate r- results faster and faster. So, so what happened when they ran this thing? Two things happened. Uh, the speed and accuracy for the, for the first thing with the speed and accuracy was kind of off the hook. Uh, this thing ran in a few milliseconds. Now remember Uh-oh. other, f- other fast simulations would take a couple of minutes. This thing ran in a few milliseconds. So that's, that's comparing 120 seconds to a few thousandths of a second. A lot, lot faster. But not just that, it was also much more accurate. So you had amazingly fast, amazingly faster than the f- previous fast, uh, simulations, but also much more accurate. Instead of a 9.3% relative error, we were talking 2.8%. So this is kind of the best of both worlds. It's incredibly fast. I mean, even faster than fast, but it's also very accurate, uh, you know, much more accurate than any of the fast simulations in the past and approaching the level of accuracy um, of the, of the slow, you know, multi, you know, multi hundred hour uh, simulations in, in the past. So that, so that right there, that's fantastic. That's just like, wow, that's all you could have, you could have wanted or, or really even needed at this point. But the other big surprise, uh, or the biggest surprise really was how the deep density displacement model extrapolated b- beyond the training data. Typically, you, you really don't see too much, uh, going beyond the training data. That's my understanding. They were doing these inference tests. Uh, and the researchers modified variables like, for example, the amount of dark matter in the virtual universe, and the system still created accurate simulations. You really wouldn't expect to see that, though, because those tweaks were not in the training data. And this really astonished uh, the researchers. They really did not see that coming. And Evan, this is what they're not sure exactly how that happened. How was it able to make these accurate extrapolations well beyond the training data? That's what's really got them flummoxed. And uh, it's just one of those anomalies that uh, is uh, but just wonderfully unexpected. Uh, Shirley Ho of the Flatiron Institute in Carnegie Mellon U- University, she said, it's like teaching image recognition software with lots of pictures of cats and dogs, but then it's able to recognize elephants. 
Nobody knows how it does this, and it's a great mystery to be solved. Yeah, that was uh, just just really an amazing result that I'm I'm really going to track what you know how this happened because they they were truly surprised. So what are we going to see in the future? Who yeah. the hell knows? I mean, it, <laughs> I don't know how we're going to predict it, but uh, I think um, I'm very hopeful though that we're going to see some amazing stuff. The researchers think that they should be able to model other forces like hyd- hydrodynamics and just like basic, just for general benefits to artificial intelligence and machine learning. They think uh, if they learn how, you know, if they get under the hood and learn how this is extrapolating so well, uh, it could mean lots of uh, uh, leaps in ability for even more leaps in, for AI and machine learning than, than we've seen in the past. Uh, perhaps I'll step out of the limb and I'll say I'll predict that perhaps in the future, the system could even actually brainstorm a name using all D's like mm-hmm. deep density displacement doodad. I mean, but of course, I, I, I can't predict. It'll need an upgrade for that. Do you imagine the powers of alliteration this thing could have? Of course, I'm being silly here, but this is this is cool. I mean, using AI, using deep learning and simulations, I mean, it's a marriage made in heaven. And uh, who knows what's, what's going to come of that. Bob, are these generally running on supercomputers? Uh, pretty much. I'm not sure what class. I mean, yeah, for these, I don't think you would need supercomputers necessarily for the really fast uh, simulations because by definition, you know, they, they don't take too long. But if, yeah, if you're doing these, you know, 300 hour highly accurate, uh, runs, then yeah, then yeah, you're going to need some class of, of supercomputer, uh, to do that, I would think. Cause who, you know, who, who wants to wait? And that's one, that's one of the reasons why these simulations are, are manageable even before we apply deep learning because, uh, the, just the general capability of computers and supercomputers the past 10, 20 years has gone up so much that not, these things can be realistically run. And now, you know, now that you've got these simulations that are running in milliseconds, you don't need to spend millions of dollars on supercomputers. You could do something on your phone potentially. Uh, you, you wouldn't need to spend so much money on the supercomputer. I mean, if it's running in milliseconds, then, yeah. uh, I mean, you could uh, use a low-end computer and, and oh, I'll, I'll only wait 10 minutes, you know, type of thing. I'll bring up my Create a Universe app. There's an app. <laughs> yeah, right. Evan, before we go on to some emails, do you know what happened today? On July 2nd, 2019? Yep. On July 2nd, 2000. Well, Does that lots date? of things, but to what are you referring? Something in South America? South America. <gasps> the eclipse? The eclipse. The was total today? eclipse. That's yeah. right. Oh, my gosh. We're, we are so northern hemisphere centric. <laughs> centric, <laughs> yes. We, we, don't, through, we, don't, we hardly pay attention. Went through Chile and Argentina. There. It was the oh, total gosh. eclipse. Yeah. The next yeah. one, 2024. Through America, Texas through to New York. America. Yeah. Oh, definitely going to see that one. I'm, oh, I'm making yes. a commitment right now. I'm definitely going to see that one. Yep. Do it. Yep. You will not regret it. It's a life-changing moment. That's, uh, that's what I hear. Okay. Mm. So uh, Jay will return next week with Who's That Noisy? So we're going to skip right to a couple of questions and emails. This one, first one comes from Ryan George from New York. And Ryan writes, hi, my name is Ryan. That makes sense. Um, (laughs) I'm a longtime listener and huge fan of the show. I never thought I'd be one to email the correction. But after listening to the most recent episode, I noticed that you briefly touched on each of the more pervasive fitness misconceptions. Lactic acid was for a long time thought to be the source of soreness, but most of the recent research seems to point to that not being the case. Wait, wait, Steve, I'm a little confused already. I hadn't seen this this email, but soreness, 
because soreness is a little bit ambiguous. Because for me, lactic acid was the cause of of that temporary pain as you're as you're doing your your sets, your repetitions. It the gets burning. so painful. The and fatigue, I thought, right? I thought that was the the lactic acid buildup that was actually painful as you're working out. The soreness, though, when I hear the word soreness, I'm thinking the soreness you feel after after a workout the next day or two, especially yeah, if you it's called delayed it muscle service, yeah. Right, so which one soreness. which one is he referring to, do you think, in context here? Well, it doesn't matter because okay. lactic uh-huh. acid causes neither of those things. What? I know. So this is interesting because this is one this is one of those things that early on, and I when I say early on, I'm going back almost a hundred years. Like the early research created this idea that lactic acid builds up in the muscles with exercise, that causes burning, fatigue, maybe the soreness, and that idea got into the general population. It got into the exercise community. Became gospel. <laughs> it became something that everybody knows. And meanwhile, the research kept chugging along and discovered that it's actually not quite correct. Wow. Right? And, but it, but no one gets the memo. So this is that was the story that I learned in medical school even. I think so part of it is just that it, it you know is just the precedence it got into the public consciousness. Part of it is that it's a nice neat clean story. You know, it's sort of it's something you could hold on to. And so you know it's hard to give those up. The real answer is a lot more complicated. Mm. But I'm going to try to summarize you know the situation as we currently know it. But th- again, this is going to be in a very superficial level of detail. Obviously, there are entire textbooks. There are entire courses you could teach just on what I'm going to try to summarize in a few minutes. So I'm going to give you the very broad brushstrokes. But this is sort of the level that most people misunderstand the role of lactic acid in muscle exercise. And so I'll just try to correct that level of misunderstanding to a reasonable approximation of what is going on. So to back up a little bit, you all know that our every cell in the body needs energy, right? And it, it our cells can use a variety of things as a fuel source from which to make energy. Glucose, fatty acids, amino acids, pyruvate, even it could even use alcohol. Um, there's a number of chemicals that could feed into the reactions that ultimately create ATP, right? ATP is the energy currency of biology. Adenosine triphosphate. Right. The, yeah, so it's a, it has those three phosphate bonds. It gives up one to, to, to become ADP, and that's where you get energy from that bond. And then, and then you, when you're making energy, you turn ADP back into ATP, and that's how you store the energy. You're storing it basically in that third phosphate bond. Okay, so our muscles need a lot of energy, and sometimes our muscles need a burst of energy, right, when you – do strenuous exercise when you have to run or whatever. What our muscles use for energy depends on a lot of things. So our muscles are very, are you know, we've involved a lot of adaptations that make our muscles very versatile in how they can use energy. So it's not just, they're not just getting their energy from one source. They're getting energy from multiple sources depending on a lot of physiological variables. But mainly, one, one big variable is how intense are you burning energy or, you know, how intense are you using those muscles? So when we're just going about our day, you know, not, not doing any kind of even moderate exercise, just our, you know, basic metabolism, just walking around and doing our normal stuff. Uh, most of our energy is coming from the uh, fatty acids in the blood, 
right? We're burning fat for fuel, and that's that's what you want to do. But you, we could only create sort of a low, steady, uh, continuous burn st- stream of energy from that fuel source. If we, you know, have to run or or lift or do some physical exercise, we need faster energy, uh, and that comes from a number of sources, but largely from the glycogen stored in our muscles. We glycogen is basically a chain of glucose, right? So you have glucose is a sugar molecule that is our main source of carbohydrate energy in the body. The liver stores glucose as glycogen. Uh, Muscles store glycogen. Most of the glycogen stores in the body are in the muscles. There's some in the liver, and then there's a small amount of glucose in the circulating in the blood. Yeah, that's Steve. That's a lot of people. People that advocate having a like a post weightlifting snack or or even mini meal what their their goal that they claim is that they you know they want to replace the glycogen that you just used up in your muscles yeah. after the after the workout that's what that they, that's legit well that's the goal i mean the thing is whether you're gaming the adaptations are already built in there by doing that or not is is a different story but we, we won't get mm-hmm. to that right. um so the the glycogen in your liver is mainly used to stabilize the glucose level in your blood which your brain needs to you know stay awake the glycogen in your muscle is mainly used as the backup energy source for when you have increased energy demands and there's only about 2000 calories of glycogen stored in the body but uh, a, a Average person, normal weight, healthy weight person might have a hundred thousand calories stored as fat. Whoa! Yeah, it's a lot. So that's fifty, yeah, so 50 it times as much. Yeah, but still, two thousand. Imagine you've got two thousand calories on demand, quickly on demand uh, that you could use. You know, whenever, whenever you want. You know, in whether you're doing something. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, and it would, it would be used for something that's beyond your. You know, your basal metabolic rate. You know, just walking. Around or talking, but you're doing intense. That's still a lot of calories. Imagine, yeah. you know, imagine you're on a bike. How long would it take you to burn two thousand calories? You know, running fast on a treadmill or something. That's yeah. a lot. That's Many a lot. Hours. So that's pretty cool to have that. But that's on, all it, your muscles and your liver and circulating, and and a lot of that's going to your brain because your brain needs to burn glucose. Needs to burn. Okay, glucose so how, I wonder how much of that two thousand though is, is is basically directly accessible to your muscles. Yeah, a lot of it. A lot of it. Probably a good chunk. All of right, it, maybe. All right. So. What happens when you exercise, right? That's the question. And the answer there is, well, it depends. It depends on how long you've been exercising, how intensely you're exercising. But one thing that happens is, I guess I should also say as background, there's two basic ways you burn fuel for energy, anaerobic and anaerobic. And aerobic, yeah. yeah. So anaerobic means without oxygen. Uh, and there you, and if, we're, if we're burning glycogen or glucose, and you could do either one, you could either take glucose from the glycogen or you can directly, you know, burn the glycogen or, or burn glucose. There's glycogenolysis and, and, and glycolysis. So if you, if you're just burning glucose without oxygen, you get two ATP and the result is pyruvate. Uh, and pyruvate is also an energy storing molecule. Uh, but that's it. You get two ATP, but then the pyruvate can be transported to the mitochondria where they can be oxidized, now burned with oxygen, and you get a total of 30 ATP from that. So 15 times as much energy out of that glucose molecule 
if you burn it with oxygen. Nice. Right? And that produces CO2 and water as a byproduct, which is why you're panting. You're panting not because you need oxygen. You're panting because you're trying to blow off all that CO2 that that you're producing. The limit of oxygen is more like the capillary density, like how much blood, how quickly can you get that blood flowing by your, your muscles? Not so much the breathing. The breathing is mainly about blowing off CO2. So- when you when you're burning gly- glucose for energy during exercise, you make pyruvate. The pyruvate goes to the mitochondria, gets burned to make a whole bunch more ATP with oxygen. But eventually, if you keep exercising, again depending on intensity, duration, and your conditioning, you reach the limit. You you basically saturate your mitochondria. Your mitochondria can no longer keep up keep up with demand with demand, and the pyruvate backs up. Right. And okay. some some of that py- pyruvate gets turned into lactate, lactate, and that's when you start to get the buildup of lactate. Th- that much is true. And so people think, oh, again, the, so it's a lactate, and it's really not in the form of lactic acid. It's really in the form of lactate, but that's a different story. But that yeah, it's partly semantics. Uh, but in any case, the the lactate does build up to some extent, and so that much is true. However, here's the part that's not true: the lactate is not a is not like an end waste product. Actually, 75% of that lactate gets transported to the mitochondria, gets converted into pyruvate, and gets burned as fuel. So the the lactate itself is perfectly usable as fuel. The rest goes to the liver and gets recycled into glucose. So you'll eventually use up all of that lactate. Lactate's also an energy-storing molecule, but 75% of it just gets used by the muscles as fuel right then and there. So it's not a waste product. It's right, like, right. So it's just another pathway of metabolism that gets used as fuel. Neat. But here's the other thing is that it it doesn't make the muscles acidic. And in fact, the process of turning pyruvate into lactate eats up a hydrogen ion, which actually reduces the acidity in the muscles. So the the lactate, if anything, is buffering the acidity of the muscles and the acidity is mainly becoming is coming from the buildup of hydrogen ions from the metabolism. Does that make sense? So it's not really contributing to the to the acidity of the muscles. If anything, it's buffering it a little bit. So there have been different types of experiments saying, well, when why do people feel the burn and why do they get fatigue and why do they get sore? If you look at studies where you uh, look at muscles, like you you dissect a muscle from an animal and put it in a petri dish and then inject things into it and stimulate it and look at its contraction, et cetera, et cetera. Like you're just studying the physiology outside of a biological organism. Like what, what happens if I inject lactate into a muscle? It actually does not cause fatigue. It, in fact, it improves the function of that muscle. But that's different than if you, if you inject it into a like a mouse or a rat, a, a, a full animal. So then that does decrease their, their muscle strength. So there's oh. something, there's something going on in the whole organism that is not going on when you inject it in directly into a, a muscle outside of an organism. So it's not a direct effect of the lactate on the muscle, in other words. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening? We actually don't currently know. What? We don't know. There are hypotheses. Some people think that it might be an effect of circulating metabolites like lactate on the brain, like the brain is less able to drive the muscles. I'm not sure that I buy that. But the bottom line is we're not really sure exactly what 
the what causes the muscles to crap out, you know, after exercise, extended exercise. Um, it's not the lactate, though. Does not appear to be the lactate. Um, so it's not responsible for the burn. It's not causing acidity. It's not causing the fatigue. The soreness, it, the late, you know, the delayed muscle soreness after exercise. I thought that was but, micro tears. That's my. That's the. That's the current leading hypothesis. It's the micro tears in the muscles, and it's not has nothing to do with the, with lactate or anything metabolic initially. Yeah. Huh. The bottom line of all this is that that's like a very very quickie version, is an oversimplified schematic sort of version of what happens with exercise. You make burn glucose to pyruvate, then that goes to the mitochondria to make a lot of ATP, but. If it gets backed up, you get lactate, but that then just gets used as fuel, and that's not the problem. So lactate is just another fuel source. It's really not uh, the, what's causing the burn or causing your muscles to get fatigued or to crap out. And yet that that belief is massively widespread. And in, in prepping this oh God, segment, yeah. I had to go through a lot of resources that were still peddling the outdated view before I found – you know, I had to go to mostly to original articles published in literature – or to fairly high-level academic summaries of the research. If I just went to even professional academic websites intended for general information, most of them were wrong. So I found more more resources, even reasonable resources, getting it wrong than getting it right. So this, this is just one of those myths that needs to be corrected. And I had it wrong too. I thought until, I, until we crowdsourced this and we got emails, I, I – Believed what I learned in medical school. I had no reason to doubt it, you know? Wow. Yeah. So it's also, it, I was very interested to, to discover that we still don't really know what the answer is. You know, you think that we would have this pretty buttoned down by now, but it's complicated. Yeah, that's, that's a surprise. Wow. They will, and again, because I'm just really scratching, I'm just giving you the very simplified version of the physiology that's going around, all the metabolism that's happening, all the different pathways involved. And it's a really complicated adaptive system. And the other thing that happens, I'll just point this out, and this is a good, again, general principle to keep in mind in terms of how biological systems work. Remember, biological systems are complex, dynamic homeostatic systems, right? Mm. And they're not designed, they're evolved. Right. And so one of the things that happens is if you have a byproduct of a metab metabolic process and then some other pathway mitigates that byproduct or utilizes it in some way, right? So like you, you evolve a metabolic process and then the waste products of that process become a problem. And so eventually you you evolve a pathway to deal with those waste products. When that happens, it's likely to also happen that the waste products then become a signaling molecule molecule to trigger those recovery metabolic pathways, right? Yeah. So that's what also what happens. The the, the products of, of exercise metabolism become signaling molecules that trigger other metabolic processes Fascinating. that that maintain homeostasis. Which which makes sense makes evolutionarily, sense. right? I mean, yeah, if you, if exactly. you didn't, didn't signal them, then you died. You didn't, yeah, live, right. you know, you didn't yeah. pass on your genes. Of course, that's, that makes sense that that's the way it would happen. The thing you're trying to get rid of becomes a signal to get rid of the thing that you're trying to get rid of. That's why like uh, oxygen-free radicals are signaling molecules of metabolism. So we mm. think, oh, they're bad. We take antioxidants to make them all go away. It's like, yeah, you're just trying to mess with a homeostatic dynamic process that, that's not accounting for that, right? You, those oxygen byproducts, those oxygen-free radicals are actually – the body makes use of them in some way. 
and maintains a very careful homeostasis. And you, you can't just go in there and muck around with it and think you're going to make things better, you know, better than millions of years of tweaking from evolutionary tweaking? Probably not. But my antioxidant juice. Yeah, I know. It spawned an entire industry based upon a misconception. Yikes. All right. One more quick email and then we'll do a very good sign. I was tempted to to save the science or fiction for when we had the full crew, but I just didn't have time to make another one. So you, you two were going to get the benefit of a really interesting science fiction. But quick, one quick email. This one comes from Annika Jorgensen from Utah. Annika writes, I have listened to your podcast for a year and really appreciate all that you do. I just listened to your most recent episode and I am confused on one thing. What's the difference between climate change and global warming? I wanted to answer this question for a couple of reasons, but one is that the climate change deniers often play on that. They Uh make it seem like the scientists who are saying that, you know, climate change is a thing are trying to somehow be squirrely or deceptive by changing the branding or changing the labeling of it. But it's it's based on something very simple. So global warming is pretty self-explanatory. It basically means that the average temperature of the Earth, of the surface of the Earth, the atmosphere of the Earth, the water on the Earth, the average temperature of the you know part of the Earth that we're living in is increasing uh, on average over time. This has been happening since the you know, industrial age basically, but but for the most part for the last 60, 70 years, it's been measurable. Um, however, the uh, the term climate change has been used more recently because even though the average temperatures are warming, that doesn't mean that temperatures are warming everywhere equally, or in fact, that there aren't places on the earth where the average temperature might be dropping at times. Um, it's just that you have to average the entire environment and then the then you have warming, right? So it's climate change because the climate is changing. It's on average becoming warmer, but it's not becoming warmer everywhere. So warming doesn't, doesn't capture all of the changes that are occurring. So climate change is a more inclusive term that encompasses all the things that are happening to the climate due to the global warming, the the warming in average temperature. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, just a, a slightly technically more inclusive term to say climate change. But that's it. Uh, however, the, again, the deniers try to exploit that to make it seem like scientists are trying to hide something or to be cute in some way. It's just silly. But thanks for that question, Annika. All right, guys. Let's go on to science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. There's a theme. The theme is... Stigler's Law. Stigler. Have you ever have you ever heard of that? Stigler's Law. That's is that from Scott Stigler? Stigler. (laughs) The Scott Stigler. Stigler's Law. No, what is that? So yeah, so Stigler's Law uh, was uh, popularized by Professor Stephen Stigler in his 1980 publication Stigler's Law of Eponymy. Basically, states that no scientific discovery is named after the person who actually discovered it. Hmm. Right. So 
you know, there's a name attached to many discoveries and laws. And we think that, that the person that it's named after is, is the person who discovered it, but it's often not the case. So I'm actually going to give you four scientific laws. Oh, boy. <laughs> three of there's them. A, there's only two of us here this week. Okay. Three of them. <laughs> I actually get more, t- more time for each of you because there's only, three, only two of you. So four items. Three of them are genuine examples of Stickler's Law, and one is not. Oh, my gosh. Does that make sense? So in three of these, the, 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 the statement as I'm saying it is true, and in one it's not true. So it's that. It's the usual thing, but so only one so of them. Say, one of them is one, one of them strange. is named after the peop, the person that really discovered it. Yes, right. Okay, gotcha. But in each of them, I will be saying that it isn't. But you know, one of them, it, it actually is. You'll understand. It, Ready? Suffice to say, Stigler was correct in his analyzing this. I mean, he would have yeah. all the data to back it up and prove. To oh be yeah, correct. there are lots okay. of exa- There are lots of examples. But I will okay. say this. In fact, Stigler's Law is an example of Stigler's Law because he wasn't the first person to come up with that idea. Oh, my God. That's epic. <laughs> I All love right. it. Here we go. Item number one, Gerard Kuiper did not predict nor discover the Kuiper belt. In fact, if anything, he predicted that there would be nothing where the eponymous belt of objects was later discovered. Item number two, the Avogadro number was not discovered or calculated by Amadeo Avogadro, but 50 years later by Johann Josef Loschmidt. Item number three, Bernoulli's law of fluid dynamics was actually discovered by John Dalton, who worked out all the math, but Bernoulli only later applied the principles. And item number four, Venn diagrams are named after John Venn, who popularized them in the 1880s, but they were introduced more than a century earlier by Leonard Euler in 1768. Bob, go first. There's really, I mean, you, you just got to either know this or you <laughs> don't. It, you, it's so hard to suss out, but not impossible. But still, I mean, like Kuiper, I mean, wouldn't surprise me. It's just funny how he, that, uh, he predicted that it would be nothing, if, if it's true. Uh, Avogadro, yep, same thing, no idea. I mean, you know, <laughs> perhaps if I knew this uh, Johann Joseph Loschmidt, um, maybe I could figure out, but don't know him. Bernoulli, See, that, that it made sense that somebody, somebody who worked out the math, but um, but didn't apply the principles. That that I could see that happening, and the same with this last one with Venn, a Euler though. Oh man, I know that name. Crap. I wonder if that could. I wonder if that could. <laughs> wonder if that could help me out. If I actually remember this punk, but yeah. And that makes that makes sense as well. That somebody who popularized them had them named after him, but but they he did not introduce them. So maybe I'll just use those lame reasons to to exclude three and four because that the way you laid it out, I could totally see happening where one and two are more are more vague uh, in terms of those extra little details that you had. So so let's see. So let's go. Should I pick Kuiper or Avogadro? Right, I'll I'll say Avogadro for not much of a good reason at all. I'll just throw it out there. I'll say that that I'll say that he, whatever. That that's the fiction. That's that's the standout. Okay, Evan. Oh, reverse order for me. Venn diagrams and uh, versus Leonard Euler, or some might say Euler is how they would pronounce that. And really, the only Euler. The, Euler, yeah. The only reason that I think I have a good fix on this particular one, where I don't on the other three, is because my daughter just finished geometry uh, in in her 10th grade. And among the homework and things I was helping her with, the name, certainly Venn diagrams came up, as did Euler. So uh, not in the context of when 
you know, who preceded who or, but the names are definitely, uh, were used quite a bit in the, uh, in the geometry class. Oh, yeah, it is Euler. So I will say that that one's going to be science. Um, Bernoulli's law of fluid dynamics. So the only clue I have for this particular one is we were talking, oh boy, I don't even know if it made it to the show. We, we once interviewed Adam Savage. We've interviewed him several times. And we got into the discussion, I think, on Bernoulli's law of fluid dynamics. We were talking about things relating to that. And I could have sworn another name came up. It could it have been John Dalton. I, my my memory's so fuzzy on that. So I think that one's going to wind up being uh, science as well. <clears throat> as far as Avogadro goes, uh, and Avogadro's number, I'm going to join Bob. I'm going to say that this one's the fiction. And here's why. And again, <laughs> oh gosh, when Randy... James Randi came to speak for our local skeptics group uh, many years ago in the late 1990s. And part of his presentation, where he was talking about homeopathy, he talked a little bit about Avogadro. And he certainly credited Avogadro with the one who, as the one who actually did come up with the number, with the calculations. And he was talking also about how it was proven many times afterwards and is held up for for all this time so that one's making me think that this one's the fiction that avogadro's number is in fact uh the discovery of armedio avogadro and as far as kuiper goes i don't know uh we i don't think we've talked about jared kuiper in context on the show so i really have no reference there i'll join bob it's avogadro that's the fiction okay so you both agree with avogadro so we'll start with number one Gerard Kuiper did not predict nor discover the Kuiper belt. In fact, if anything, he predicted that there would be nothing where the eponymous belt of objects was later discovered. You guys all think that this is a genuine example of Stigler's law. And this one is science. Oh, God. This is true. Kuiper's belt was not discovered by Kuiper. So uh, very quickly, a hat tip to Karsten Koch who was a listener who sent me that item, which became the inspiration for this science fiction. It's not really clear, you know, who first should get credit for the Kuiper belt. Like if you had to name it after the person who deserves to have it named, deserves to have it named after them, not really clear. Uh, There was a guy, Edgeworth, who said maybe there's stuff beyond Pluto, but, you know, just speculated. It didn't really have any science behind it. And then another guy called Leonard, so he also talked about – so Leonard was the first guy to put into print the possibility of transplutonium objects as early as 1930. So whereas uh, Kuiper was writing in 1951. Okay. Uh, but Kuiper basically said he didn't think there was anything beyond Neptune or beyond Pluto at the time. You know, wow, the, that's funny. Between that, he thought that Pluto was throwing stuff into the, the Oort cloud. Really? So he thought that, huh. yeah, that any object in that part of the solar system would go – yeah, it would, would be either in the Neptune-Pluto region or in the Oort cloud and that there would be nothing in between. So he was wow. actually exactly incorrect. <laughs> That's the best kind of it. <laughs> so exactly incorrect that we will name it after him. Right, 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 right. All right, so what's interesting is I, I, I uh, came up with the three I wanted to use. Then I had to come up with a, a fake Stigler's law. In other words, I had to come up with a scientific law that you would recognize by name. That was not an example of Stigler's law. And right. I couldn't find one. 
you, are it you was, serious? Um, but it took. I had to look through like six, seven different ones before I found one that was a clean example. Oh boy! Like uh, and there were some. They're like, all right, well, this is way too easy. You know, like I'll give you an example of one I didn't use. Okay. I'm like, all right, well, I could use as the fake Maxwell's equations, right? I mean, because obviously those are were written by Maxwell. Hmm. But I thought, oh, I thought that's going to be too easy. You guys are going to know that. Yeah, that one would so, be easy. Probably, yeah. That one. No, but they weren't written by Maxwell. That's the thing. Oh. <laughs> I like, so I said, all right, I'll make that wow. one. But then, I, but then the, like two or three, I'm like, all right, I guess, really? I'll, I guess I'll use Maxwell. Cause like, that's the only one I could think of that it was not an example of Stigler's Law. But the th- obviously, Maxwell wrote equations. But it, all right, it's not that he wasn't – he didn't uh, bring together a lot. So this is very. This is an aside, but very, very quickly, there were lots of equations dealing with electricity and magnetism, and they were done by people like Gauss and and Faraday and Ampere, right? So, but what what Maxwell did was bring them all together and 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 realize that they're all interrelated right he's the guy who basically proved that yeah it's electromagnetism and the and light travels by the propagation of electromagnetic waves okay but but the but what we know of as maxwell's equations those like four key equations were were developed later it wasn't until about 23 years later that oliver heave aside with uh, josiah gibbs and heinrich hertz grouped maxwell's 20 e- equations together and then simplify them down to a set of four equations. So when we, but the, but those are called those four equations are called the Maxwell equations or Maxwell's equations. But they're not. They're really Heaviside, Gibbs, and Hertz. But they're derived from Maxwell's equations. So it it it's not that it, it's not fair to credit Maxwell with them. It's just that it's not a clean example. So that's why I was having a hard time finding a clean example of something that was clearly named after the person who discovered that thing that the name is attached to. But that's just not the way science works, right? That's why Stigler's Law exists, because most of these discoveries are a process that multiple people contribute to. And it's usually like the last guy to bring it over the the threshold or – to popularize them or to whatever. Like some, the, the person who gets credit for it is never the sole person responsible for it and may not even be the key person or the best person to credit with it. It's just the so nature of science. Whatever sticks, whatever name kind of sticks. Yeah, or maybe sometimes people grab credit like we've heard in the, the – uh, Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Forgotten, super forgotten heroes, superheroes. But, but yeah, there's oh, multiple yeah. ways in which credit gets – you know, misassigned. Sometimes it's deliberate. Sometimes it's like named after somebody to honor them, even though they didn't really make that discovery. All right, but we'll get so just keep all that in mind as we go through the rest of the list. Let's jump to number four. Venn diagrams are named after John Venn, who popularized them in the 1880s, but they were introduced more than a century earlier by Leonard Euler in 1768. You you both think this one is science, and this one is. Science. This one's also science, so oh, it's boy. true. Wow, <laughs> and that's a good example of of Stigler's law in that uh, Venn did not come up with the idea; he just popularized it, and sure. so it got attached to him. But I'm the kind idea, of okay with that. Yeah, but the idea was—I mean, a, a century earlier, you know, Euler yeah. 
invented the whole idea of the Venn diagram, and they're not Euler's diagrams. They're Venn diagrams. Although now it's hard to say Venn diagram sounds cool, but that, that may just be because that's what I've heard of course, my whole life. Yeah. You know, it's hard right. to separate that out. Okay, let's go back to number two. You guys both think this one is the fiction. The Avogadro number was not discovered or calculated by Amadeo Avogadro, but 50 years later by Johann Josef Laschmidt. You guys both think this one is the fiction that Avogadro did discover Avogadro's number. And this one is science. Oh, oh no. guys. Avogadro's <laughs> number was not discovered by Avogadro. Oh, my brain. I must retouch my brain so much. <laughs> wow. Damn. Crap. So, and also, it, Avogadro's number is more complicated now. It's now Avogadro's constant. And there's a difference between Avogadro's constant and Avogadro's number because Avogadro's constant is not, does not have a specific numerical value. It's more of a concept that you can give a value. I don't really fully understand it. I read it the explanation like three times. I didn't quite get it. But it's like it's not a specific number. It's more of a calculation. And you can – you can because it doesn't have a unit, right? You can give it a unit. You could put it in terms of a unit, but it doesn't have a unit. So that's Avogadro's constant. Avogadro's number specifically applies to – you know, that's the 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd. It is Avogadro's constant defined in terms of a number basically. And it is the number of either molecules or atoms or ions or whatever of fundamental constituents that exists in a mole of one substance. And a mole is has a very specific definition. I think it's usually referenced to carbon, hmm. like it's a, a very specific mass of carbon, which is basically one Avogadro's numbers of, of atoms of carbon. Interesting. Which relates to its atomic weight, right? It's not exactly the atomic weight for because it depends on the number of neutrons, but for carbon it works out. So that's why that's the reference, right? So yeah, so it's the uh, number of elementary and particles in 0.012 kilograms of carbon-12. That's Avogadro's number. But that was that number was not calculated or discovered by Avogadro, right? So Avogadro first proposed this. Avogadro proposed that the volume of a gas at a given pressure and temperature is proportional to the number of atoms or molecules in the gas regardless of the type of gas. So if you have the same number of molecules of, of neon or oxygen or hydrogen at the same pressure and temperature, it would have the same volume. Does that make sense? Yeah, that yeah. does. That's it. That's what he came up with. French physicist Jean Perrin proposed naming the constant to honor Avogadro. Um. But the number, Avogadro's constant, was first estimated by Johann Laschmidt. So it, this, was, this, was, this was a deliberate thing, and it was done to honor Avogadro. But anyway, that's uh, interesting, well, right? You were right when you were saying talking about honoring people with uh, yeah, that's one of the ways. All right, so that all this means that Bernoulli's law of fluid dynamics was actually discovered by John Dalton, who worked out all the math. But Bernoulli only later applied the principles. Is the fiction because Bernoulli did discover Bernoulli's law? Way to go, and, Bernoulli! But that was like yeah. my sixth or seventh thing that I tried to find that was real. Wow. Yeah. So it, so it, he did the math. That's it. Bernoulli did the math. Dalton was had dealt with the law of partial pressures. So he was also involved in the same area, but he did not 
you know, work out the Bernoulli's equation. Bernoulli worked out Bernoulli's equation. But but there's enough raw material here though that I could do this once a year. You know, the same. Like yeah, this sure. I could. <laughs> well, next year when all four of us are playing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, when you guys least expect it. So it's just, the the thing I is at first approximation. That. At first approximation, it's always a good assumption to assume that. An eponymous law was not discovered by the person's named after. That's probably true more often than it isn't. And for various reasons. For various reasons. And also, it's the same thing with inventions. Like the person who gets the credit for inventing something is oh, yeah. really the person Crapper. Who, actu- who actually invented it. And again, it's because of – well, no one person invented most things, you know, like the light bulb. It's a complicated history. Yeah, yeah. And with people adding incremental advances over a hundred years, and uh, Edison wasn't even the guy who really got it over the threshold of a commercial product. That was Swan. Whatever we've said this story before, you know, um, Edison basically bought the patent of Swan's light bulb and then asked him out and took credit for it himself. I mean, he did research and came up with light bulb designs, but the what the the incandescent bulb that that ultimately revolutionized. You know, lighting was not Edison's invention. It was Swan's invention. But this, you'll, you'll hear the same story for many, many, you know, iconic inventions. It's interesting. All right. That was a tough one. Well, I did, yeah. I, Very tough. It was a tough yeah. one. Definitely. But a good one. Yeah, but fun. Fun to talk about. Okay. Evan, give us a quote. This quote was suggested by a listener, David Gerald from Florida. And I like it. Thank you, David. The knavery and folly of men are such common phenomena that I should rather believe the most extraordinary events to arise from their concurrence than admit a violation of the laws of nature. David Hume, yeah. Scottish philosopher. Excellent skeptical philosopher. Yeah. Absolutely. Basically, if someone you know, says something wacky, they're probably – just wrong or lying or whatever, rather than, you know, changing the laws of nature to accommodate. It's also kind of a version of extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Sure. You know, it's the same kind of idea. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, did Hume is a bottomless pit of skeptical quotes. Right, oh, is gosh. he? <laughs> yeah. Read him forever. <laughs> and we should. So guys, don't forget, this is actually the last show that will go up before Nexus. We'll be at Nexus next week. When our next week's show comes out, so uh, next Thursday to Saturday, July 11th to 14th, either you can show up at the door. If you haven't gotten a ticket, there are still tickets available. If you can't make it to New York, you can stream the whole thing for a $15 donation. You can go to the website. You can see instructions on how to stream it, necss.org slash live, uh, and you get to watch all the great panels and lectures and events and some backstage interviews and cool stuff. So check it out. Yeah. Can't wait. We have a wait good lineup it. this year. Yeah, it's going to be a lot yeah, of fun. It's going to be great. And don't forget, I'll be at Logical LA July 21st. Cool. Looking forward to that as well. Nice. All right, Bob, Evan, it was a fun episode, just the three of yeah. us. Yeah. We killed it. We don't need those two uh, other punks. <laughs> <laughs> but they will be joining us next week. So we'll have to deal with, with uh, Jay and Karen next week. <laughs> and until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions. 
dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. And don't forget about the new PBS special, Chasing the Moon. This three-night special event gives you an immersive film experience like you've never had before, hearing from the people who were there. You'll see what happens when Americans put their collective efforts into one great endeavor, no matter the risk, and achieve the seemingly impossible. Chasing the Moon, a Robert Stone film from American Experience, premieres Monday, July 8th at 9, 8 central on your PBS station.